0: Well, it's my honor and my great privilege to be your speaker, at least one of your speakers this evening. I feel a, a great deal of gratitude and appreciation to the congregation here at Grapevine. I don't think I've ever spoken here at this building before. I've spoken in the area several times, but never for you all, and so I'm very thankful for that, and yet the leaders here were willing to ask me to speak anyway. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity that I have and the opportunity that these other young men I have as well to speak for you all. I'm also very thankful to share this pulpit throughout the weekend with some fine young men. I have a great and tremendous respect for all three of these guys. I've known Matthew and Austin for a little while now. I haven't had a chance to know uh, Benjamin quite as much, but I know that Matthew has shown us already the amazing talent that he has to spread and teach the Word last night. I know Austin will do that again Uh, tomorrow, and I know Benjamin has done that as well. I want to thank Benjamin especially for being willing and uh, prepared to speak at this meeting and speak to us each night. I know he's put a great deal of thought and preparation into his sermons and his comments, and so I think they all should be commended for that. In keeping with the theme of this meeting, we're going to draw our attention to a question that's asked by Job in Job chapter 14 and verse 14. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to take it out and follow along as we read and study. We're going to consider for just a little while Job chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. Job 14, beginning in verse 7, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Job says, For there is hope for a tree, if it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. For though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep." Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. The story of Job and his trials and his situation is a familiar one to many Bible readers. As we read through the Old Testament, this narrative seems to stick out to us as an inspiring and a hope-giving testimony that God, the God that we worship, is in control and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. At the beginning of this book, we're introduced to this man whose earthly possessions far exceed and outweigh that of his contemporaries. He was a wealthy man beyond compare, really. He had many sheep and cattle and other livestock. uh, God had blessed him with a large house and a large family, and really much more than even that, life couldn't have been much better for him. But in the next two chapters, there in chapters 1 through 2, the plot begins to thicken a little bit when the devil or the accuser approaches God and says that if Job were to lose that wealth and that worldly gain, he'd surely lose his interest in serving the Lord and lose his faith too. Well, God allows the devil to take all of that away from Job, starting with his money and his cattle and his other livestock, and continuing with his own family, his wife and his kids, and finally ending with his own physical health. But through it all, Job never loses his faith in God, despite what others around him try to tell him, at least at first anyway. But it's not really our purpose to talk about that part of his story. Instead, we're going to look at some of the things which Job and his friends consider after he's lost all of those possessions. You see, after these terrible incidents, Job begins to reflect on his life a little bit. He talks with his friends and maybe some of his family too. And they begin to consider what might have brought all these things to pass. Was it the sins that he had committed in his life? Was it just God's punishments on him and on the world? Was it the sins of his family or something they did? Or was it something else altogether? Well, one day while he's kind of thinking out loud, if you will, Job begins to complain to God about all the things that have happened to him, even starts to accuse and blame God for what's happened. He says in chapter 1, or uh, verse 1 of chapter 14, rather, he says, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Essentially, he accuses God of being interested in the life of man only in so much that he can bring judgment and condemnation to him when it's all said and done. And throughout the rest of this chapter, he's going to build on this thought and kind of explore that idea. He's going to describe the sinfulness of man the mortality of man. And then finally, he'll consider in the text that we're going to examine the most closely, the possibility that man may live again. So let's now turn our full attention there to the text at hand. He says there, beginning in verse 7, For there is hope for a tree, if it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease though its root may grow old in the earth, and the stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. Now that kind of language is used throughout the Bible. It's very common in the Scriptures. Job starts by examining something in the natural world, in the common world, and draws a spiritual or theological application from it. He says, look at a tree, for example. Let's imagine for a moment that we're looking at a big, huge tree, whose trunk is large and it's got lots of branches and leaves, very fruitful. And furthermore, let's imagine that someone comes along with an axe and cuts down that tree all the way to where there's nothing but a stump left in the ground. Well, for all intents and purposes, that tree appears to the unaided eye to be dead, to be useless. But you see, because of the anatomy and the biology of trees, it's possible that even a stump can begin to grow again even if it it has the right environment and the right nutrients. Job says rightly that even if the roots get old and pass away and perish, if someone comes along and waters it again, then life is restored to it and once again it begins to grow. Now back where I grew up in West Virginia, I, uh, I get to see this kind of thing happen a lot. In fact, it was just a few months ago that I decided I wanted to plant a couple little trees in my backyard in hopes that one day they'd grow into larger trees Preferably, preferably big enough where I could hang a hammock in between the two of them and take a nap in the afternoon during the summer. But a couple of weeks ago, while I was out of town, a storm came through and the winds from this storm began to pick up and they were so fast and powerful that one of those little trees that I had planted just snapped in half, leaving only a little stump about that big around in the ground. So that crushed my hopes of ever having a place to put my hammock, I guess. So you can imagine it quite, took, took quite a toll on me emotionally. But by the time I got home and saw this stump for myself, it had already actually begun to grow again. It had a little sprout coming up out of it. You see, even though it appeared to have died and ceased its life, it began to grow again. Now you can also see this language being used throughout the Old Testament in relation to the coming Messiah. The prophets often describe the nation of Israel as this gigantic tree that is full of branches and full of fruit. But because of their idolatry and disobedience, they've been chopped down by God and thrown into the fire, leaving only a stump. You can see this kind of language being used in Isaiah chapter 11, for example, where he says in verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. This pictures Jesse as a branch, or or Jesus rather, as a branch or a rod that springs forth out of the stump or the root of Jesse and proves that there's still life in this root or in this stump. Now in the New Testament, This language is actually continued and expanded further as Paul uses very similar language in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now we're going to talk about this passage in a little bit more detail in just a moment. But for right now, let's look at just verses 36 and 37. He says there, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. For what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. He says that when a farmer goes out into his field to sow seed in the ground. It may appear that the seeds which are planted or buried are completely dead and devoid of all life and vitality, but in due time they begin to grow slowly but surely, and they begin to show signs of life again. And God gives each of these literal, physical seeds a transformed body based on the seed they come from. But when we continue to read Job... In Job chapter 14, he begins and he continues by saying in verses 10 through 12, "...but man dies, man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise." till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Job is deeply perplexed and confused about this because when he looks at the natural world, he sees evidence that some things seemingly die and then rise again. But when he turns and looks around at the condition of mankind, he doesn't see that same process happening. He surely has seen hundreds if not thousands of people die in his lifetime. He's just seen his own family die, and yet they haven't risen from the dead. He says, when a man lies down, he never rises up. They don't awake and are not aroused from their sleep to walk again. But this problem isn't only evident to Job. Apparently, the preacher noticed the very same problem when he says in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 18-22, "...I said in my heart concerning the conditions of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals." For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they, have all, they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than a man or that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Is there anything that will happen to mankind after their spirits depart from their body? What will life be like for all eternity for mankind? Well, that's the great problem. Some of you might say it's the great problem. But Job concludes this discussion in verses 13 and 14 by saying, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait until my change comes. After all that he had suffered and endured during his life, Job, he says he's ready to leave this world. He wants to get as far away from it as possible. He tries to make a deal with God, it seems. And he says, what if you just let me die for a little while and hide me in the grave until things get a little bit better here on on this earth? And then set a time to bring me back and change me, and change my life into something better than it was before? Would, you, would that be possible? In other words, if a man dies, shall he live again, or can he live again? Well, Job doesn't get an answer from God directly in response to this question. And this has led many people, many scholars even, to believe that the Old Testament does not teach that humans will ever rise from the dead. They contend that there was no such doctrine found in the Hebrew Scriptures and that the resurrection is just simply a Christian invention that happened through time. But we have to to deny that assertion based on two pieces of evidence. First of all, there are several passages in the Old Testament itself which clearly affirm that man will be resurrected in some form or another. Like in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19, it says, "...your dead shall live." Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and and the earth shall cast out the dead. So to say that the Old Testament doesn't at least indicate the possibility of a resurrection cannot be true. But secondly, there are many Jews in the first century, during the ministry of Jesus even, who clearly are not Christians, and yet they believe in the resurrection of the body based on the teachings of the Old Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 23, Paul is on trial in the city of Jerusalem for the things that he had done and taught. He's on before a council of Jews. And during his defense, he says in verse 6, or the Bible says in verse 6, But when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out to the council and said, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So even outside the body of Christians, there were people who very clearly believed in the resurrection. And some of them, at least, belonged to this group of Pharisees in Acts chapter 26. So with these two scriptures and two pieces of evidence, we can conclude very confidently that the entire Bible and not just the New Testament teaches and affirms the resurrection of the body. But it's not our goal. It's not our purpose to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about the resurrection? Our purpose is to answer Job's question. If a man dies, shall he live again? And if he does, what will that look like? Well, when we set out on a mission to study the Bible, to answer a Bible question, I think it'd be very unwise of us to only look at a small section of the Bible for our answer. The scriptures were written by the apostles and prophets through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we can't exclude any part of it or else we run the risk of missing one of its teachings or misunderstanding one of its teachings. So as we survey the scriptures, we quickly come to the realization that the Old Testament does not give us any examples of a true resurrected body. That is a body that was once dead, once in a grave, and yet lives again and will never die again. It's not until the New Testament do we see a person whose body dies, only to have that very same body rise from the dead and never die again. And this person is actually very important. He's so important, in fact, that the Scriptures contain four biographies of him that were written of him. And we call these books the Gospels or the Good News Stories. But for our discussion tonight, we're going to look for the answer to this question based on the writings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we alluded to earlier. In this chapter, Paul gives a fairly extended discussion and dissertation of the doctrine and reality of the resurrection of the body using very, very similar language to what Job used in Job chapter 14. In fact, there are some people who say that Paul might even be quoting from Job 14 in this chapter. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 15, Paul addresses one of the very many misconceptions that were prominent in the church here. He says, "Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no res- resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty." And yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up the Christ whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. Apparently there were some naysayers in Corinth who claimed that there was no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. History tells us that there were many pagan and idol worshipers in the Greek culture at this time who denied the possibility of the resurrection of the, from the dead. And this ideology seems to have leaked into and influenced many of the Christians' uh, thought as well. But Paul's not going to have this, and he is very quick to correct them. Now, I have to apologize for something right here to you all. I think I, I may have wasted some of your all's time tonight, because in these next few verses, Paul is going to give us the answer to the question we've been trying to answer now for about 15 minutes or so. He says there in verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits and afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. After Christ died... He rose from the dead. That means that His literal, physical body, and this is important, His literal, physical body was resurrected and came out of the grave to reign over His kingdom forever. But this resurrection, Paul continues, wasn't just an event that didn't have any impact on me and you, but it came with a promise. It promised that just as He was raised from the dead... So will all mankind be raised from the dead. So we could have really just read this single passage and had our question answered. If a man dies, shall he live again? Paul says, absolutely. And if we don't rise, then our faith is hopeless. There's no reason to be a Christian because that means Jesus didn't rise. Now I've kept you all long enough, but I'll leave you with one final scripture that hopefully will be as encouraging to you as it was meant to be to these early Christians in Corinth, in verses 42 through 45 of this same chapter, Paul kind of wraps up this discussion by saying, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Because of Jesus, if a man dies, he shall live again.